propaganda is as old as civilization itself. But as technology has evolved, so too have the techniques of propaganda. According to Sam Woolley, assistant professor in the School of Journalism at UT Austin, we're currently living in an era of computational propaganda. In his riveting new book, The Reality Game, How the Next Wave of Technology Will Break the Truth, he describes in vivid detail how information warfare is being waged today across social media platforms using algorithmic, data-driven processes to spread disinformation and to sow distrust amongst the electorate. He argues that the tools of computational propaganda are only becoming more sophisticated, and if we don't act now, democracy itself will be the victim. You're listening to the Technology and Prose podcast, a member of the Oxford Podcast Collective. I'm Nikita Agarwal, and this week I'm joined by Sam to chat about his new book, The Problem of Computational Propaganda, and what we need to do about it. Sam, welcome to Technology and Prose. Thanks very much for having me. So your book is all about computational propaganda, um, or what you refer to as comprop. Um, so I wondered if we could start with some terminology. You know, how do you define comprop? Um, and in particular, how is it different to other terms that we hear a lot about, like misinformation, disinformation, and particularly fake news? Sure. So computational propaganda or comprop is... Uh best defined as the use of automation and algorithms over social media in attempts to manipulate public opinion. That's just fancy language for saying that it's focused upon uh, the use of bots, so social media bots uh, or automated profiles on sites like Facebook and Twitter, and manipulation that happens via algorithmic processes on those sites. So, you know, using bots, say, to manufacture a trend by making something seem more popular than it is. Um, And that's the bread and butter of, of computational propaganda research. Uh, it's kind of expanded over the years to focus more generally upon uh, propaganda, so attempts to manipulate public opinion more broadly over various technological systems because of the fact that most of our technological systems these days are run in some way, shape, or form by algorithms um, or by automation or by some version of AI. And uh, it's, it's, it's distinct in the sense, from those other terms that you mentioned in the sense that it's more focused on clear attempts to manipulate how people think, speak, or act in relationship to politics. And so it's more, it's, you know, the antecedents for, for this work are things like the work of Herman and Chomsky in Manufacturing Consent or earlier work by, by Jacques Ellul or uh, Lippmann and Laswell. Um, Dis and misinformation are part of computational propaganda. Oftentimes disinformation or the purposeful spread of false information is a tactic used by computational propagandists. They'll build an army of bots that will then spread all sorts of fake stories related to, say, a particular politician or a particular idea. And then that that gets picked up and spread as misinformation or accidentally spread false information by lots of other people. Um, 
but they're sort of they're parts of computational propaganda, but they're not all computational propaganda involves mis or disinformation. Um, there's also some other terms that float around, like influence operations and information operations. Those are more generally tied to uh, the efforts of powerful governments or militaries to manipulate communications through a variety of different media systems. While it's true that computational propaganda is is intimately tied to other networks and other media systems, as shown by people uh, like Bankler et al. in their book, Network Propaganda. Um, it's also true that we don't take as broad a view as, say, a lot of people that focus on influence operations or information operations doctrine. They tend to be more uh, governmental or, or military or intelligence wonks. And, and so what's wrong with the term fake news? I, I think or the sense I got from the book is that you don't like the term and you think it's sort of been weaponized. <laughs> yeah, like I think fake news began as a term that was used to describe clearly false uh, information that was dressed up as real news. So there was examples in the 2016 U.S. election of, of sites like the Denver Guardian, which were made to look like real newspapers, even stole the Guardian's name, and then produced content, much of it disinformative about the 2016 U.S. election, that were clearly fake news sites. But over the course of the last several years, people like Donald Trump particularly, but also his supporters and more broadly around the globe, uh, other despots, people like Modi and uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil and others, have used this, this language uh, to describe media with which they don't agree uh, or to attack media that criticizes them. So P Donald Trump is, is the number one person who's done this, really said, CNN is fake news, the New York Times is fake news, and it, it's become sort of just a slur used against these organizations. And it's, so it's not as if like, I don't, I understand the terminology and I understand it's where it came from and things like that. I just think it's become, it's means something different now to people than it did several years ago. And so what I say is like, let's be a bit more specific. Let's, let's say disinformation or misinformation, or we could say propaganda if we want to go more broad, or we could say influence operations. Uh, or if we're talking exact about actual fake news websites, we should say that it's a false news um, website because fake news just has so many other connotations at this stage. I feel like this really goes to the heart of the title of your book, um, The Reality Game, which is that, you know, by co-opting terms like fake news, it sort of makes it confusing for the general public to really know what is true, like what is real. Yeah, when we first started studying computational propaganda at the University of uh, Washington and then at the University of Oxford, we we didn't we hadn't encountered so much of a debate about what was real versus what was false or what was true versus what was false. Um, it wasn't really until 2016 and after that that, that I, I became more entrenched in this idea that reality was up for discussion. Uh, and it was really um, the wave of populism uh, and populists that took control around the world, including Trump and Modi and Bolsonaro, but also uh, many others like Duterte or Erdogan, um, who, who created their own version of the truth or who have worked to create their own version of the truth by, by systematically attacking the media, by undermining public trust in institutions, which seems in some ways uh, counterintuitive to what you would expect governmental officials to do. But since they're populist, it makes good sense because they're trying to rile up uh, the regular person. Um, but then also that these people, particularly Donald Trump or in England, Boris Johnson, they've selected the things that work best for them 
in terms of facts or figures, and then completely attack things that disagree with what 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 with what they're trying to say. This is not a new behavior. It's not something that's new to politics. Of course, we've seen this for a long time. It's just that our informational landscape, particularly our media landscape with social media and uh, the growth in encrypted messaging applications means that nearly anyone can create their own version of the truth and try to spread it. Uh, and that there's been a you know, increase in polarization, a decrease in trust in institutions, and that's why we exist in this space now. Where we're in, almost in this game of reality where uh, the person who can speak the loudest, whether it's through using bots or sock puppets or paid political influencers or other types of tools, eventually wins out. And so it's not we don't exist in a place where the marketplace of ideas uh, in, its, in its true format exists, wherein the best ideas rise to the top, but rather we exist in a time when uh, oftentimes the, the loudest or most sensational ideas raised to the top. So conspiracy theories like QAnon come to mind. And so is it fair to say then that it's populists and maybe more uh, right-wing political groups that have a monopoly or they're more successful at uh, Comprop? Yeah, I would say that by and large, we've we've seen more computational propaganda spread uh, strategically by right-wing regimes. That being said, there's also left-wing regimes in South America, um, the former Chavez regime, um, uh, Rafael Correa's regime in Ecuador, that made use of similar tools. It tends to be that it's demagogues who like to use this kind of stuff, um, whatever flavor they come in. Uh, They, unsurprisingly, have a disregard for the truth and they want to exercise control. And so computational propaganda and things like disinformation are really useful tools for uh, gaming the truth, for gaming reality, and for for making people believe things that are just completely non-factual because of a number of different uh, psychological factors, whether it's the need to belong, belief perseverance effect, bandwagon effect, these kinds of things. I find quite interesting the sort of boundary between like illegitimate and illegitimate manipulation. It could be argued that like Obama's campaign uh, pioneered, you know, the sort of use of data to identify undecided voters. And at that time, it was called like grassroots campaigning, right? But so is this just not that? Is it just worse? Or is it like, is it qualitatively different? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's tied to that, because you're absolutely right that the twenty eight the 2008 Obama campaign pioneered the use of big data sets for voter outreach. Um, and that it was some version of like hybrid grassroots astroturf, because it was the campaign organizing people to make those phone calls to reach out to voters on particular issues. The the line that I draw is 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 really uh, lying. So telling clear falsehoods uh, or using anonymity to target people. So the Obama campaign was clearly reaching out to people saying this is the Obama campaign. A lot of computational propaganda comes from anonymous sources or it comes dressed up as if it comes from someone else, you know, what we call a false flag attack. Um, and so deception is is one of the things that I think constitutes more problematic or what you might call, quote unquote, bad propaganda. That's not to say that all sorts of other kinds of propaganda don't exist and that all sorts of politicians and commercial enterprises don't use propaganda uh, both in bad or good ways, if you want to use those terms. Um, I think what you're getting at, uh, Nikita, is that there's a there's a gray area here and that that pervades all of these information operations. 
except for those that are that are more clearly hateful or racist or harassing uh, or violent um, and or, or disenfranchising people or spreading misinformation or disinformation about how, when or where to vote. So there's some clear harms there, but uh, but there definitely is a gray area. Would you say that sort of the big wave of Comprop um, happened around these populist um, elections in you know around about 2016 or, or can we trace it back further? We can trace it back further. Um, it's just that people really started paying attention to it in 2016, mostly due to problems that arose in the West with computational propaganda surrounding Brexit and the United States 2016 election. So it wasn't until the English-speaking West started focusing on it that it became really uh, in my backyard. Silicon Valley starts worrying. The United States Congress and British Parliament start worrying. And so then it, you know, it becomes a, more of a global issue. Uh, we can track this stuff back as early as 2010 and arguably even before on sites like Twitter, uh, Facebook, YouTube, and others, um, particularly in places like Ukraine where Russia was attempting to sow disinformation uh, using old Cold War tactics and other areas, uh, post-Soviet areas and regions. Um, also, Mexico had a lot of really early, very uh, problematic and pervasive computational propaganda spreading. We've, we also saw this during the Arab Spring. And actually, it was the computational propaganda that spread during the Arab Spring, particularly in Syria, that really inspired Phil and I to start doing this work. Um, Phil had been do Phil Howard, that is uh, director of the Oxford Internet Institute. Phil had been doing um, work on democracy and dictatorship uh, and, and technology during the Arab Spring and the ways in which people were using this technology for positive democratic purposes. But simultaneous to that, we and, and several other colleagues of ours uh, at the University of Washington also had noticed that there was lots of bots being used to uh, spam conversations, do what was called Twitter bombing amongst ad activist hashtags so that the activists couldn't use those hashtags to talk anymore. And so suffice to say, uh, computational propaganda has been a global problem for quite a long time. And there was people that were trying to bang the drum and say, hey, listen, like this is going on, like we really need to pay attention to it. But they weren't really being heard because many of them were in the global south or they were in countries that didn't have the power to make someone like Google or Facebook listen to them. And so it wasn't until the 2016 US election uh, and the debacle with Russia, but also Cambridge Analytica and all of that stuff. And then the Brexit referendum in which uh, tons of bots were spreading pro-leave messages on Twitter that people really began to pay attention and, and now have really pivoted more to the focus on disinformation. But again, like disinformation is just one part of this. And I think of it as kind of the tidal wave we're experiencing, whereas like propaganda and other problems like polarization are, are more like the, the wave, or sorry, the, uh, the tidal force rather than the wave. Is social media sort of the main platform on which Comprop is playing out or social media platforms are the main venue for Comprop? Or is that only part of the problem? Uh, that's a good question. So social media platforms have changed the way that propaganda spreads and the way that disinformation spreads because there are many to many media ecosystems. So all sorts of different kinds of people can create content. Um, when they were first created, there was a lot of discussion about how they would be these utopian tools that would save democracy because suddenly everyone could have had access to all sorts of libraries and books and other information and, and civic discussion. Um, but these, these spaces were quickly normalized for political control. So what that means is that governments understood that in order to control the way that people thought uh, or what people were doing, they needed to also be involved in manipulation campaigns on social media. That's what we saw during the Arab Spring in Ukraine, 
in Mexico. Uh, and so, so social media have substantively changed the way that propaganda flows, particularly because of the use of automation. So bots and other processes, algorithms. Uh, so the use of if this, then that, uh, process, mathematical processes that, and code processes that, uh, oftentimes prioritize sheer quantitative force over any kind of qualitative metrics. Um, and what that meant, particularly prior to like our current era, because there's been a lot of regulation that's happened. But what that meant is that a lot of trends were gamed and that a lot of recommendations from the social media companies were actually false, um, and but then spread amongst people as if they were legitimate. Um, and then also because of big data, because there's been the ability by by these firms, whether it's you know Cambridge Analytica or other organizations, to gather massive amounts of data on users, and then use various tools, including Facebook's ad dashboard back in 2016, and very le much legitimate quote unquote processes to target groups. And so it's still demographic politics, and it's still demographic oriented propaganda. It's not like the hyper individualized micro targeting that Cambridge Analytica pro promised, but it's much more potent. Um, and then I should say, you know, like what happens on social media oftentimes spreads to traditional media. It spreads to TV, it spreads to radio it, and to newspapers. And there's a whole strain of research led by people like Joan Donovan and Kate Starbird focused on media manipulation, looking at the ways in which people that spread propaganda on social media or disinformation on social media oftentimes target journalists or target media makers in traditional media to get them to spread the content there. And so that's where that network propaganda phenomenon happens. And that's why, for instance, in the United States, Fox News and Breitbart and talk radio like Rush Limbaugh, why they all factor in as well, because they perpetuate a lot of the lies that oftentimes begin online or incubated online. Um, although it's not only a one-way street, it's a, it's a two-way cyclical thing. I often call, call it like the worm Ouroboros, you know, like the snake eating its own tail. It's like you don't quite know where it begins and ends, and, and it's a challenge. So, so let's talk a bit more then about, you know, what we need to do about Comprop. And you've already raised many important kind of like pressure points. And so I tend to think of it as a kind of three-part structure. There's like the suppliers of Comprop, um, there's the consumers or kind of the demand side, and then there's the intermediaries, which are um, like the vehicles for Comprop. And that could be the social media platforms as well as traditional media. Let's start with the social media platforms since we were, we're already um, talking about them. It seems like there's been awareness of the problem for some time, right? Um, why why such a sort of slowness to react? Yeah, so first, just let me say that that supply, demand, intermediary structure is a really parsimonious way for thinking about it. And I definitely recommend other people focus in on this, um, this, this structure that you've come up with. Uh, in terms of the social media companies, uh, for a long time, they got away with ignoring the negative social implications of the tools that they were building. There was clear signs that, that there were problems with the algorithmic processes behind social media, whether it was the Facebook news feed or the YouTube uh, uh, recommendation trending system. Um, for instance, right after the Parkland shooting, the number one trending video on YouTube was David Hogg, one of the survivors, is a crisis actor. And it was, it was going online and being spread massively by bots, amplified by bots, classic computational propaganda. Um, prior to that, Facebook had dealt with a lot of issues to do with uh, pro-governmental propaganda flowing in Mexico. Uh, so had Twitter. Uh, similarly, in Ukraine, um, anti-Ukrainian uh, anti sentiment, pro-Russian sentiment. And so the warning signs were all there. 
the social media the social media companies had the information in their hands and i know they had the information in their hands because my team at, at oxford sent them and shared with them the the papers that we were writing and i know that other colleagues of ours including people like kate starboard and joan donovan and others were similarly sharing what they were finding with facebook and twitter but they didn't have to act because public sentiment wasn't against them yet and it wasn't until 2016 that public sentiment turned and so uh you know some people are fans of saying that oh they didn't really know that this stuff was happening i i completely disagree they did know uh, I don't think we can let them get off with that kind of uh, aw shucks, like hands in your pockets defense of like, we didn't, you know, we didn't think about this. Um, it's true that the platforms weren't designed to share scientific information or that they weren't designed necessarily for political conversations. But it's also true that people like Jack Dorsey have talked about sites like Twitter as uh, a digital public square and like made these kinds of comments. And so if you know that that's the case, then you should have pre preordained that there would be manipulation that would happen there in the same way that in the real public square, there was paid people showed up to cheer for one candidate or another. Um, and so another thing is that they didn't want to, they didn't want to whistleblow on themselves because they didn't want regulation it's really important to remember that back in 2016 and earlier that social media companies were incredibly anti-regulation from the government uh, in almost every form that they said that innovation was more important and that regulation would stifle that innovation. I mean, what I read between the lines there is that they were making so much money and growing so quickly that they didn't want any breaks on the train. Uh, but the train really needed breaks. Uh, and now and now they've realized this. They've had this whole mea culpa moment where they've said, oh, we, you know, we, we do need policy. Um, for instance, I read The Economist and I see Facebook has ads in there nearly every week that, that say Facebook welcomes regulation. And it's just such a marked turn from what we saw. And we have to remind everyone that these companies were not always so open to this stuff. It's good that they've they've made progress but they are very much responsible for what has happened. And uh, we should hold them accountable for that because they were, they were against regulation. They willfully ignored the facts. And now that we're in this situation, they've scaled to such a, such a degree. People like Mike Anony, who's at USC, um, great scholar, have argued that they, they placed this growth upon us, not the other way around. Like Facebook made the decision to grow to over 2 billion users, you know, and, and to spread it itself around the world. And that that has particular implications that Facebook needs to be in charge of responding to. Yeah, I think, you know, there's, in regulation, there's always this kind of balance between self-regulation and public regulation. And I guess there's sort of two two things we need to think about. Like one, you know, why um, is Facebook, Facebook or Twitter's own policies not adequate or why can't they police this problem them, themselves? Um, and then there's the other part, right, which is like, well, you know why? Why are governments not regulating? Like it, there's a question upon incumbent on governments. Like why are you not yeah. regulating these platforms? Yeah. Well, to the first point, um, it's pretty simple. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, any of these social media companies—they're beholden first to their shareholders. What they care about is the bottom line. And computational propaganda—it's been shown benefits them because it, it it amplifies the numbers of people on their site. It amplifies content. It means more ad views, more clicks, more interaction, even if it's not real interaction, even if it's false or manufactured. And so that means that, you know, they're fighting against themselves and have had to do this 
when they get rid of a lot of these accounts. And so that's the simplest reason for why we can't rely upon social media companies themselves to do all of this internally, to self-regulate. The other reason is, uh, is that this is a, a multi-platform international tr- trans-border problem. And so any one solution that Facebook comes up with or Google comes up with will only suffice to help treat problems in a very piecemeal way. And we've got to do more. We have to have platforms collaborating together. And historically, they've shown an unwillingness to do this because of intellectual property and other reasons. Uh, And then the governmental piece is is a big challenge as well. The governmental piece, the simplest thing that I can say, at least in in terms of the United States and the United Kingdom, is that these countries also willfully disregarded the need to police the online informational space for a variety of reasons. Lobbying, of course, is one of them. The dot-com boom was happening right around, the first dot-com boom was happening right around the time people were talking about policy, you know. Um, And so there was powerful lobbying going on. But simultaneous to that, governments have for a long time been been kind of confused about how to regulate the online sphere because they haven't very well understood it. Uh, I always talk about the fact that the Federal Elections Commission in the United States in the early 2000s made this decision that they weren't going to monitor political speech online because they didn't consider it to be, uh, in in their words, they didn't consider it to be on par with, say, political speech on TV or in films or on in print. And that's just absolutely insane. So like you had, you know, nearly 20 years ago now, the, uh, the main body for overseeing elections and election malfeasance saying we're not going to monitor manipulation campaigns or, or undo financial transactions online. And then now we look back and we're like, that was an absolutely absurd decision. These governments should have, should have taken up some degree of, of ownership of these platforms uh, not not literally, but uh, in terms of regulation back then. And Section 230 was, for the United States, it, and for everyone else internationally that uses these platforms, remember, it's only 20-something words. It's a very short bit of, of content that basically makes it so that social media companies as they exist today are not liable for the content that appears on their sites Uh, But this legislation was written in the 90s, the mid 90s, and it was not intended for the kind of social media sites that we have now. And so it was very myopic. And and that's another part part of the problem here, Nikita, is that we don't, the laws that we have created, even in the EU, or, or, you know, like DeMarco Seville in Brazil, they haven't, they don't get consistently updated, and they're not up with the times. So I'm also wondering how much of this is a particularly American problem. Um, and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, but in a sense that, you know, these platforms, uh, which we kind of agree are big amplifiers of um, disinformation, big part of the comp- problem, um, are mostly American companies. And what we've seen is, okay, the influence of provisions like Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, influencing platform liability, um, and also kind of this this um, culture of, of you know, freedom of expression, which is incredibly important, but it's been slightly twisted in the discussion over um, regulating speech online. Oh, you're, you're spot on. And, and I would say it's been massively twisted, um, not just slightly. Uh, and there's a few reasons here. One is the prioritization of the free market and commercial enterprise over social welfare 
um, in the United States. And that's been something that's gone on for a long time, arguably outside of the United States as well. Two, yes, like, you know, the fact that these companies are by and large the largest social media companies and, and search engines are based in the United States, you know, is tied to that prioritization of the free market and free market prerogatives rather than, say, like, you know, the protection of marginalized communities who might be adversely affected most by these problems with these platforms. Um, and then another huge thing we should mention is is free speech and the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. So if you if you if you agree with me and you say, yeah, like lots of these countries, companies are in the United States. And so the United States has to get right with its own policy. Then if you accept that premise, then what you also have to understand is that the United States is highly allergic to anything to do with monitoring or policing free speech. Um, and, you know, oftentimes it's been to the detriment, particularly again, of marginalized communities, communities of color, of women. Um, there's no consensus in America about that, you know, uh, something like a hate speech law or about monitoring the disinformation that people like Donald Trump have spread about the outcome of elections or about electoral processes. And that's a huge problem. Um, Americans have to get more nuanced when it comes to the issues of speech as they exist. I'm not necessarily saying I ad I myself advocate for a U.S. hate speech law, but I am saying that we need a bit more we need clearer protections for uh, for the communities that don't have as much of a voice that are oftentimes, you know, as, as people like um, Safia Noble point out in Algorithms of Oppression that, uh, that are oftentimes the most affected by these kinds of problems. So we need clear protection for them. We also need clearer rules and regulations about, you know, what is allowed and what is going to be criminalized not just like a slap on the wrist, but criminalized when it comes to spreading electoral disinformation or perpetuating violence. Remember, we, you know, this insurrection thing happened here a month or so ago and uh, in the United States. And, and so it's not enough just to step back and say we need free speech at all costs. We actually have to come up with some more sensible, nuanced legislation. In the last month, particularly, we've actually seen the same companies that said we're not arbiters of truth um, somehow managed to take down the social media accounts of the president of the United States um, and now take what seems to be a lot more action against COVID related uh, vaccine disinformation. So they seem to have been perfectly capable to do this all along. Yeah, I mean, then that is the point that we should be making. Like, yes, they did this, but it's pretty late in the game. Um, Donald Trump has been spreading clear disinformation and inciting violence for quite a long time during his presidency. It wasn't until you know the last month or so that we saw of his presidency that we saw platforms stepping in. Here's the reality: Twitter was Donald Trump's major mouthpiece to the public and to the press, and so Twitter allowed Donald Trump to say and do a lot of the things that he said and did. Yes, it's a private company, so they can make decisions. Section 230 actually allows them to make decisions about this. That's why you see a lot of Republicans now calling for the dismantling of Section 230. But that's, you know, that's silly. That's myopic and it's in a, in a completely different way because it's not just that Donald Trump has done this. It's that people around the world and other groups have done this as well. And so, uh, yeah, I'm happy that we've seen action from the social media companies and I give credit where credit is due, but there's a lot more work to do. And it needs to be more systematic and it needs to be governmental uh, and it also needs to be international. Um, 
we can't just have we can't just leave it up to these companies to be making these decisions. And frankly, I don't think the companies want to be left to make these decisions anyway. They're they're, they're having a really really difficult time and re- receiving a ton of negative PR because of it. And so, if only because of that, they want government intervention. There's also kind of the demand side, and you know the problem of people who accept false information and believe it. Um, so what needs to be done to kind of address the sort of demand side of Comprop? Yeah, the demand side of Comprop is a big thing, particularly in the United States with conspiracies like QAnon, but more broadly around the world with anti-vaccine sentiment uh, about the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, people, the research shows by and large that people tend to uh, consume bad news more more than they do good news online, and they tend to, cons- to consume conspiracy more than they do fact online, and that these things tend to travel much more quickly in online spaces than do truth or science. And uh, that's a design flaw in many ways of the system. And so we're talking about consumption here. We've also got to talk about design uh, what the, the decisions that the technology companies make, as again, people like Safia Noble or Joan Donovan had pointed out, they result in particular types of content being prioritized for people. Those That content could be racist. That content can be uh, white supremacist. And that's got to stop. You know, Right now we've seen action on that, but it, there's not a whole lot of clarity to the public or to you know researchers about how that's happening, how it's systematic and whether it's here to stay and what the next iteration of social media will do. And so one thing we can do is make design changes. We can put pressure upon hedge funds and upon, uh, upon financiers, um, venture capitalists who support these, these projects and make them think more ethically. And you know, not just ethically, because that's kind of a weak term. Let, let's make them think in terms of human rights. And that's the big argument I make in the reality game, because it has a lot more punch to it. In terms of like the consumers themselves, I'm reluctant to put the problem of computational propaganda back upon users. I think it's very in vogue and has been for quite some time to say this is a user issue. And so it's the users that are dictating the ways in which the systems are flawed. And that's so backwards. Like, you know, the systems were flawed. The systems were launched first and then the users used them in ways that maybe surprise the creators. But it's still a system problem. It's also a user problem in the sense that, yes, users do consume this stuff more. However... It's not enough just to fact check people. It's not enough just to say we need media literacy campaigns or passive uh, fixes for this stuff. It's actually much more complex. It's more complex uh, psychologically and it's more complex socially um, and culturally. Many of the people who believe conspiracies do so because those around them do, because they feel a sense of belonging, a sense of community, a sense of kinship uh, or tribalism with the people around them. And we're not really offering them any uh, alternative when we just fact check them or tell them they're wrong or shame them. And I'm not saying, I'm not, you know, these people, many of these groups are spreading reprehensible content. Um, But funnily enough, what I would advocate is that we figure out some way to show some compassion and some, some like bringing back into the fold sort of mentality of like, Here's what we can do uh, and, and presenting it that way rather than presenting it as a more adversarial model. Um, this isn't a clean solution. And the reality is there's no clean, quick fixes to the problem. Um, yes, we need changes to our educational system uh, globally. We need to prioritize critical thinking and informational literacy in the digital age more. 
Um, but that's more of a long-term fix. And so the shorter-term fixes are the fixes that come with design and the technology. The more medium-term fixes are the fixes that come by like, you know, uh, some kind of public service campaign or, um, or what a colleague of mine, Britton Heller, a uh, friend and colleagues, you know, always th- quotes the art of war, Sunza saying that we must build a golden bridge over which our enemies can retreat. The medium term solutions are the golden bridge. What does that look like? I don't know, <laughs> but there's a lot of smarter people than me out there that I think can work to figure that out. And then the long term solutions are educational and policy oriented. One of the key messages of your book is that we're kind of in a world of simple comprop and actually the more complicated and threatening stuff is yet to come. And so we still have an opportunity in some ways to kind of act. Right. I'm um, so maybe you could tell us a bit about, you know, what are the threats on the horizon? What you know, what technologies are coming our way that or are kind of developing that could really change or amplify comprop? I mean, let me start by saying that there is there is hope because much of the more sophisticated versions of computational propaganda, whether it's things like deep fakes or VR based propaganda, have not yet come to pass in a in a big way. Um, the subtitle of the reality game is how the next wave of technology will break the truth and what we can do about it in the English version. So the what we can do about it thing is something we should lean into and think about. The threats that are on the horizon are among the ones I just mentioned. So deep fake video, but also easily manipulable audio, whether it's through AI systems or other means that can be shared through uh, various platforms for deep fakes. YouTube is, is kind of the prime one we focus upon, but also Facebook and others. You can make it look or look as if someone said or did something they never said or did. Um, solutions to that need to be both software oriented and hardware oriented. So we need to begin to think about how we create the cameras that we're creating and make it possible to verify that the content was not manipulated. And there's people that are out there doing that work. Um, and we can kind of still nip deep, deep fakes in the bud before they really, before they really perpetuate. There was tons of fear that they would be used in the 2020 U S election and in other contests that have happened recently. And we haven't really seen that happen because the technology is quite expensive. And because propagandists are pragmatists, they want to use the simplest, cheapest methods first, but this technology is becoming cheaper. It's becoming more accessible. There's lots of applications you can use to create these things. And it, and it only takes uh, one video that's a deep fake going viral that's disinformative to create a massive problem. Um, social media companies and tech companies, Apple, Google, um, Facebook, Amazon, the usual suspects are investing billions and billions of dollars into AR and VR. Um, you have statements from the CEO of Apple talking about the potential for you know replacing the iPhone uh, with some sort of form of VR in the next 10 years. Uh, and so in the reality game, I discuss like what does computational propaganda look like in a VR landscape. That's that's not just something you're seeing and hearing, but also something you're feeling through haptics. Um, as my colleague Toshi Anders at the Institute for the Future used to say, the body has no metric for fake. And so, uh, what happens when you have white supremacists trying to organize and recruit using VR in VR social media systems? We already see that happening to a degree. We already see a lot of harassment, particularly of women in those spaces. And so those are, you know, useful case studies for us to look into and, and try to mitigate those kinds of harms. Uh, the solutions are quite clearly oriented right now towards design uh, and towards actually building systems that are equitable, systems that are uh, designed with human rights in mind. Um, and then more broadly, uh, you know, I touched on audio 
places like Clubhouse come to mind that are brand new, but also Telegram makes great use of audio and audio is a very simple system to manipulate. Uh, lots of smart AI voice systems are coming out. Uh, the one in the book, which is kind of old now, is Google Assistant or Duplex, um, which is a system that people can use to have their AI assistant call and make hair appointments or call and order stuff for them. Um, how might politicians and political uh, organizations use that for new versions of push polling or robocalling that are very manipulative, particularly targeting older people? Because remember, Google Duplex or assist Google Assistant uh, sounds just like a person. It doesn't sound like a robot. And so um, I think elderly people and, and kids are probably the most vulnerable to those ones. Yeah, I mean, the new kind of um, formats and new types of social media platforms create like a whole new host of challenges. And I think what's particularly interesting and also challenging is the kind of prevalence of video and audio amongst kids um, and their preference for, for, that, for those um, formats, which seem harder to moderate, particularly when you're talking about live streaming, for example. Yeah. And we already are in a place where, where many, many games and systems are already using this. I'm sure many are popping into your mind as I'm saying this, but like, we still have a chance to get ahead of it. All is not lost. Uh, we just have to we have to think more systematically and and in the reality game the whole last chapter is dedicated to particular policy uh, solutions as well as technology and social solutions, but the reality game is only a blueprint. It's the starting point. It's not the end all be all. We need to see and this is a plea from me to to listeners. We've got to see more solutions oriented research that's based pragmatically uh, or solutions oriented work that's based pragmatically in the research. So I hope to see more of that. And uh, I know there's a lot of really brilliant people out there working on this problem. So I feel heartened. Well, we'll end on that message of hope. So thanks, <laughs> Sam, so much. This is a really interesting conversation. Um, I really enjoyed your book. And thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Nikita. It was a pleasure. That was Sam Woolley discussing his new book, The Reality Game, How the Next Wave of Technology Will Break the Truth. On the next episode of Technology and Prose, I'll be joined by William Magnuson to talk about his recent book, Blockchain Democracy, Technology, Law and the Rule of the Crowd. If we are to understand a system that is built around principles of democracy, then we need to look at how democracy works and how we have structured our own democracies. Right? So the idea behind Bitcoin was we're going to have a system that anyone can participate in. They can set their own rules and uh, and everyone has the same amount of say. But of course, when you actually start implementing this, both in governments and in a money system, there are all sorts of forces that lead people to centralized power. As always, thank you for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. This little bit of algorithmic manipulation really helps new listeners to discover the show.